Good morning. Glad to see everyone who's been able to make it out for the morning services. Hopefully you've so far enjoyed the services as we sang songs to our Lord and think about the wonderful things and the wonderful blessings that we have as a Christian and worshiping our God. Once again, I want to thank the congregation for allowing me to have this opportunity to speak about things that I'm very passionate to talk about. And I hope the things that we look at today is beneficial to you that will help you in your Christian journey and help you in your Christian walk. If you have a Bible, I want to continue from where we left off last Sunday morning in Proverbs 29, verse 18. I would encourage you to turn over there and kind of stay there in the text in Proverbs 29. And while you're turning over there, let me remind you a few things about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is our Christians' um, saying of wisdom. As we know, every culture has their own saying of wisdom. Nearly every religion has their own saying of wisdom. These are ours. And it's very wise for us, very good for us as Christians that we visit the book of Proverbs from time to time because they're good instructions for us. We have also noted last time that these are not necessarily imperatives like the law that is found in the Torah of thy shalts, uh, telling us a specific command, but these are the indicatives. And what the author is doing, and he does this also in Ecclesiastes, is he is taking someone he sees as being godly, as one who has embodied or manifest wisdom in their life, and he's describing this particular person. This is someone who has taken the law someone who has taken the commandments of God, the Word of God, and allows it to move out of them, allow it to move in their life, and they're conducted by it. And this gentleman, the author, is pinning it down. He's watching this person. He's writing about this particular person. So it's good for us to visit this text. So let's go ahead and read our short passage today, Proverbs 29, verse 18. The text says, this is, a, this is out of the English Standard Version, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraints, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Let us pray. Our kind and loving Heavenly Father, Father, we thank you for this time you have allotted to us, that you have given to us out of your grace and out of your mercy, that we as Christians can gather around your word, your precious and lovely word, and study it. Father, we pray that you may be here, that your spirit may fall upon us, and that we may gain wisdom from your scriptures, and that most of all, we may apply these things to our life. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. As I have noted, we looked at the first part of this proverb in our previous study, establishing very clearly that those who do not have the word of God those who cast off the restrictions of God's word will end up in ruin and devastation. That's clearly expressed in the first part of Proverbs 29, verse 18. And we see that this chapter from verse 1 reinforces this idea time and time again, is that when a society removes itself from divine instruction, when it takes the word of God and says it no longer has any authority or any rule or any power of their life, that society starts falling apart. We see several things indicated in this chapter. We see that a society that removes the Word of God as being a rule for their life, the first thing, the society flatters its neighbors just to trap them, in the sense that all relationships are superficial, all relationships are shallow, and it's about what can I get out of this particular relationship. So we see that right away. The society weights its wealth on pleasure. The leaders tax the poor only to build up their own wealth and their own nation. The poor are not cared for or even 
thought of we see in the text. The city is set into a riot and we see that there's an absence of law and order and where places and law and order is decided, where people are having conversations about what the law means, there's only foolishness. There's no sense, there's no discernment, there is no wisdom. The society believes in lies, there's subjective truth for everyone, and we end on that children cause havoc instead of them uh, insisting that they get their own way, insisting that they get their own rule. And we can look at Proverbs 29 and almost see that we are living in that society, that we have embraced that particular society. And Proverbs 29 is not the only text in the Bible that describes a society that falls away from the Word of God. We also ended in our study looking at Romans 1. Romans 1 describes the Gentile society falling away from the Word of God, exchanging the true knowledge of God for something else, and thus they were consumed by their sin. But as we noted in our last study, the Proverbs are written in what we call parallel statements, poetic parallel statements. These are statements that usually are made up of two lines, and these lines are uh, trying to convey a thought. And there are several poetic parallel statements in the book of Proverbs and also in the book of Ecclesiastes, and there are some in the book of Psalms as well. Some are comparisons, where the lines are comparing each other. There's correlations where they're linked together. There are metaphorical ones, and then there are contrast ones as well. Now, the parallel statement, poetic parallel statement that we're reading falls under a contrast. It is called an antithetical parallel statement. Antithetical parallel statement. That what is said in this entire Proverbs with these two sentences running side by side, the thoughts are against each other. And if you're looking at that text, you can see that. They're at conflict with each other. They're at war with each other. In other words, you cannot actualize both of them at the same time. You cannot bring both of them into reality at the same time. Only one is allowed, only one is to remain in man's existence, and the other must be cast out. That's what is said in this particular text. Now, what is the contrast? Very simply. When a society and an individual don't accept the word of God as authority over their life, they run wild, they're untamed, and then they stumble in a place of destruction. That's one picture, that's one side that is presented in this text. But then on the other side, the man who keeps God's word is a happy man and is a blessed man. So we have two extremes here. We can cast off the moral restraints of the Word of God. We can say we will not listen to the Word of God anymore. We can adjust the Word of God. And there's this domino effect that happens. And we saw in the book of Hosea that particular domino effect that happens. And eventually the society is brought to ruin, destruction. But then on the other side, a man who keeps the law is a happy and blessed man. Man. Today we're going to look at this latter part of the book of Proverbs or this passage of Proverbs and answering two questions. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? And how does one keep the law? So let's answer this first question. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? The Hebrew word used by the author here is esher. And this term is often used as an interjection, exclamation, or an outburst to describe the state of existence one is in. 
It is a term used to describe one being in a place of, of happiness, a place where they would say they are truly blessed. If you have a King James or a New King James Version, you would notice that it has been translated instead of blessed, as the ESV says, it says happy is he who keeps the law. Happy is he who keeps the law. Now this term, happy, happiness, or being happy, is a very ambiguous and unclear term, and it's quite difficult to pinpoint this definition of this term. It's very hard. We can gather all of us together, and you say your own definition of happiness, and we're all going to have a different definition of happiness. And the reason so is that we keep this word in the psychological sphere. Thus, what this means is that we make it very subjective, referring to one's mental state. And your mental state can be very different from my mental state. And what brings me happiness in my mental state may be different than what brings you happiness in your mental state as well. Therefore, it becomes very subjective. Now, when we keep it in this sphere or in this realm of discussion, we can never pin down a really concrete, objective definition of the word happiness. However, if there is the, even this subjectiveness of what brings happiness, all of us can agree on one particular thing regarding happiness. We all can agree that it is the ultimate goal, so to speak, that we're all striving towards. We all may have different concepts of what that happiness looks like. We may all have different concepts of how to get to that particular happiness. But we can all agree we all want to end up in a state of being happy. We would agree that's kind of uh, uh, the objective idea with the word happiness. It is that what most individuals desire in life. They want to be happy. They want to be in a place where they are pleased. They want to be in a place where they have some delight. They want to be in a place where they're overjoyed. This is the object of human endeavor. The Greek philosopher Aristotle has a lot to write on this subject. In his writings on ethics, he assumes that everyone agrees to live in a state of good or where everything is in its right place or one is living better than the previously lived in the past. He believes that all man called this happiness. But in his writings, he also notes that there is different avenues or what constitutes happiness can be different from one person to another. For example, it may be seeking physical or fleshly desires in the absence of pain. And some people, this is what we desire out of happiness. Some of us may have just a, a hurt knee and we just desire that that knee would no longer hurt. And there may be other things. One can be, it may be the feeling of self-accomplishment and personal achievements, usually in the aspect of a career or in a job or accomplishing a particular task. It may be the welfare of one being that everything is in harmony, that everything is at peace and there is no conflict. We can think about people in Europe right now that they would probably describe where it's harmony and that would be happiness. And some may be it's the gathering of material things, the bigger bank accounts, the cars, the nice cars, the nicer homes, the better part of town, so on and so forth. Even Aristotle had his own concept of how we reach Happiness In his writings, he taught, that, he taught that it had to be a virtuous life, a life full of honor, and a life full of integrity. He believed that was the way to be happy. Now, we, what all these would agree on is that happiness is the ultimate goal. All these would agree on that. There may be different avenues to get there, but all would agree that happiness is the ultimate goal and that the avenue to that is pleasure. Thus creating two thoughts in philosophy called yodemonism, which is that happiness is the goal of life. 
That's the goal of life. And then the other concept called hedonism, the idea that pleasure is the end of all striving. Therefore, mixing these two, happiness is the goal of life, and pleasure is the road to get there. Now, in Aristotle's writings, he saw a distinction between these two philosophical concepts, but we have, in our society, merged the two. We have brought them together, that we ought to be working towards happiness, and what gets you there is what makes what brings you pleasure. Now you may be wondering, Brother Christian, we're here to study the Bible, not what Aristotle has to say on this, or what the Greeks have to say on this, but the reason I want to include Aristotle in this particular conversation, trying to define happiness, is that Aristotle's and his contemporaries and other Greek philosophers had been influencing us, the Western thinker, for the last 2,000 plus years. We've been influenced to think in this particular way of happiness. And isn't this the message of our secular society, what we see here, that you should be happy? The message of our secular society? And that you should do what pleases you to get you to that happiness? That's what we hear it all the time. Turn on the, any television set, all the commercials are selling or trying to sell a product based upon that particular pitch. You need this product because your life is not complete or you're not on the road to happiness unless you have this particular product. You need this car because this car is better than your former car and it will make you happy. You need this house in this particular location because everyone's filled with happiness here. That's the pitch. And we have bought it. Matter of fact, this very concept is fundamental to the American way of thinking. The Declaration of Independence says... This, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Rights are those that's owned to us in a society. They're always in a society context, the concept of rights. Even though this um, statement makes it clear that these are given to us by God. There's much debate on what God gives us or what God has owned to us, but we recognize when a contract is made in society, we all have certain rights within that society. That the society, therefore, is in debt to make sure that we are allowed to exercise these rights and these rights are protected. Because, as the Declaration recognizes, that everyone has been given these things by the Creator. That's their foundation in this particular statement. Now, these rights in the text are this, and there's a variety of different interpretations of what exactly life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means. A variety of different interpretations. But I'm going to give you kind of the middle-of-the-road interpretation. Life, which is the right to be alive and the right to live. You have that right. Liberty is the right to be free from restriction and constraint, that you have the right to make your own decisions and allow to be who you are and allow to express yourself as you define it. We start seeing some problems there. The pursuit of happiness is the right to attain what makes you feel joyous and what fulfills your heartfelt passion. This is the American dream. That as long as you don't violate anyone else's right or cause anything that is detrimental to society, you can do as you please, do what makes you happy. And just think this particular statement that is made in the Declaration of Independence, how it has influenced America in the last 200 years. Our society, we're in a particular place now that if you want to be, if happiness means a man can be now a woman, our society says protected, 
That's their right. They're allowed to have that. That brings them true happiness. If an individual wants to practice their own religion, our society says, yes, you're protected to practice your own religion. Our society says if you want to divorce your spouse because it's going to make you happy, our society says you can do that. Some states say if you want to marry your dog to just be happy, you can now marry your dog. The state that I come from, you can steal anything less than $1,000 and get away with it, with no criminal, criminal consequences at this particular time. That's the message that is pushed, is if it makes you happy, you have a green light. As long as it does not violate anyone else's rights, as long as it does not harm society in general, you are permitted to do it. What is expressed in this simple line is the goal of the majority of American citizens. And when we start looking at the statistics, it becomes quite evident that a majority is trying to do what brings them happiness. And the road to bring them happiness is what pleases them. One poll shows that those who make $75,000 more will be happier. As one poll shows. And thus, what does this create? It cultivates a society and a mindset that if you're in good financial standing, if you have money, this will bring you happiness. That's what our society forces. And think about this for a moment. As I see individuals going off to college and they're expressing the particular career that they're excited about, it's often judged on this um, idea. Well, that particular career will make a lot of money. Well, that particular career, you won't make a lot of of money. We can also see this how people spend their money. $9,000 on average eating out, buying and drinking or um, bringing food in. $9,000 a year. $2,000 a year is spent on things that relate to personal appearance. Trying to uh, try that, uh, find that fountain of youth. $3,000 a year is spent on entertainment like cable, movies and games like that of video games. 4,000 years spent on vacation, and 18,000 18, years are on non-essential items. And these numbers here are not those who make 75,000 years. This is for those who make an average salary in America of $47,000 a year. So almost when we take this number, $47,000 a year, and take these, it's about 40%, a little bit less, about 40% of one's income is spent on non-essential items, on recreational, on things of pleasure. We can look at the statistics regarding a man's time. An average work day of someone spending around nine hours of work leaves them about seven hours for other activities. They spend about five hours on leisure activities on average in America. And this same poll says 18 minutes a day the average American spends on religious activities. Five hours a day on leisure activities 18 minutes a day on religious activity. Now, this is the majority of America. I'm hoping that the body of Christ has a better number than this, but this is the average American. Five hours to leisure activities, 18 minutes to religious activities. America has bought the message. We bought the message. Happiness is the goal and the pleasure is the road to get there. Someone has come and sold it to us, and we say we will take that. Because we like that. It keeps us distracted from the real things. It keeps us distracted from what really matters in life. And we stay in that place of 
joy, of happiness, of ecstasy. And sadly, too many try to Christianize this particular message with scriptures like the one you and I are looking at today because it has the word happy or blessed in it. There are some religious groups that will advocate the gospel message is all about us being happy, that God wants us to be happy, that we have almost made God into this being that he is there at our beck and call to make everything good in our life to make sure everything is in order in our life, that he is there to make sure we are just really, really happy with our existence. And if you don't believe me, if you can go to a Christian bookstore, just really any bookstore, go into the Christian section, the dominant theme there is the prosperity gospel. The idea that the gospel is designed for you to bring prosperity. One of the best-selling books is titled that, Your Best Life Now. All about having your best life now. That the gospel is about making sure you have your best life right now. But my friends, that's not at all what the text is suggesting here. Proverbs 29 verse 18 ain't teaching this prosperity gospel. Ain't teaching the rubbish of that heresy. So remember, this word is an interjection and that the Proverbs are not imperatives but indicatives. It describes a state that one is in. It's not the goal that they're working towards. And we see this used several times throughout the poetic um, scriptures. In Psalms 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is not the object. Blessed is not the goal. It's a, a statement made about this person who walks not in the counsel of the godly, but stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer. Blessed is this man. Happy is this man. In Psalms 32, 1-2, And blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. He is in the state of happiness. He is in a state of blessedness. This is not his goal. This is a description of where he's at. In Psalm 33, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who he has chosen as his heritage. And Psalm 44 40 verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud and to who go astray after lying. In Proverbs 8 verse 32 and 34, and now, little sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my door. Proverbs 14, 21, it says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Poor. And then Proverbs 28, verse 14, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And this is not an exhaustive list. You can follow this all throughout the book of Psalms, all throughout the book of Proverbs. They're never, it's never the goal. It's never what people are working towards. It's a description of a man who does the things that are described in the text. He is blessed. He is happy. So Proverbs 29, verse 18, is describing the state of man who keeps the law. This man is in a place of satisfaction, that he is in a place of contentment, that he is in a place of tranquility, that he is in a place of peacefulness, and nothing can move him away from that. This is what the root of the word implies, to walk and advance on a path that is straight and right, to be led into a progressive position, implies growth and development, which should be desired by all. That's what the word the root word means walking on a straight path. When one is involving and improving in life, that is called blessed or happy is he. 
When one is involving in the word of God, when one is growing in the word of God, he is blessed and happy. But this happiness, and this needs to be seared in our mind as Christians, is not the goal. It's a byproduct. It is a byproduct of what is being accomplished in this text. It is a byproduct of going after another goal. It's a byproduct of trying to go after another action. And that action in the text of Proverbs 29, verse 18, is he that keeps the law. He that keeps the law. The word keep in the Hebrew is a very strong, strong word. It's a word that's used quite a bit in the Old Testament scriptures. It means to exercise great care over, to pay careful attention to, to put something under their guard and protection, to have an attitude of paying close attention to it. This concept and word is often used to speak of one's relationship that they would have with the covenant of God or with the law of God or with the statues of God. We see that Moses used this particular term in the Torah. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimony and statutes which he has commanded you. In Deuteronomy 8, 6, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in the ways and by fearing them. In Leviticus 18, 4, 5, he says, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And we can see this several times also in the poetic um, literature in Psalms 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. And the particular context is observing the, particular, the, the law that has been given to them. In Proverbs 19, verse 16, whoever keeps the commandment, keeps his life, he who despises his way will die. And, of course, our Lord even used this very language when he spoke to his disciples in Luke 11, verse 28. But he said, blessed, rather, blessed are, either, are those who hear the word of God, hear the word of God, and keep it. And then John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas said to them, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Who sent me. We can have difficulty, however, applying how we use the word keep and applying it to the ideas and the concepts of the word of God. We know the scriptures has this language, repetitive language, of keeping the law, of keeping the word of God, of keeping the covenant. But it's hard for us to imagine 100% on how do we keep this. For we often employ this word today in things that we can hold on to like our possessions. For example, we understand what it means to keep a car. We understand what it means to keep a lawn, to keep a house, to keep children, or to keep a dog. We understand what it means in that, in the sense of a stewardship is provided, that we are to take care of those things, that we have custody over it, and that we are to preserve it. But how do we keep the law of God? How do we keep the law of God? In Psalms 119, in the 119th chapter of Psalms, the Psalms that describes the 
great blessing of one who puts themselves under the law of God, we see what it looks like for a person to keep the law. And it includes so much more than simply having the scriptures. We will not read the entire Psalms. I'll keep you, keep you here all day if we read 176 verses of this Psalms. But I just want to read the first part of this. Psalms 119 verse 1 day. And just notice the language of this man drawing close to the word of God. He says, blessed are those who weigh as blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Who seek him with their whole heart. Who also do not wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learned your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The message paraphrase says this. You're blessed when you stay on course, walking steadily on the road revealed by God. You're blessed when you follow his directions, doing your best to find them. That's right, you don't go off on your own. You walk straight along the road he set. You, God, prescribed the right way to live. Now you expect us to live it. Oh, that my steps might be steady, keeping to the course you set, that I never have any regret in comparing my life with your counsel. I thank you for speaking straight from your heart. I learned the pattern of your righteous ways. I am going to do what you tell me to do. Don't ever walk off and leave me. If you have your text open to Psalms 119, notice the characteristic of a man who keeps the law. Is a man who seeks it with passion. It's not something he just has to read. It's not something he just has this obligation that's forced upon him by the community that he lives in to get familiarized with it. He has a passion to read it is a passion to read it. He has a passion to seek it. It is a person who fixed their eyes upon the commands. And the reason they fix their eyes upon the commands is so that they will not violate the commands. Sometimes we want to learn the word of God so that we can win arguments, not to be molded by it, not to be instructed by it. Here's a man who fixed his eyes on the commands so that he will not violate the commands and be close to to God. It is one to set their inner being on the Word of God. It sets their hearts governing every aspect of man's life so that he may walk according to its precepts and its statutes and its right rules. And you can read the entire Psalms, and this is repetitive or repeated several times all throughout the entire Psalms of this particular chapter of a man who loves the Word of God, a man who desires the Word of God, a man who wants the Word of God, a man who wants to be changed in harmony with the word of God. My friends, to have the Bible is not the same as keeping. I know plenty of people who are not religious that have a Bible at home. It's not the same as keeping. Even if you dust it, it's not the same of keeping. To read it occasionally is not the same of keeping. To remember scriptures is not the same as keeping. To know what it says regarding what is right and what is wrong is not the same as keeping. To keep it is to become what it commands. All these other things are going to be required. You're going to have to have a Bible. You're going to have to study the scriptures. 
You're going to have to memorize the scriptures. You're going to have to know what it says on right and what is wrong. But all this needs to be collected to change you or to change us, to conform to the image presented there. That's what it means to keep it. To be molded by the word that is presented. It is as what James instructed in James chapter 1 verse 25, but the one who looks, parkuto, parkupto is the Greek word. This word means bend beside, to lean over. And it's in the act of eris, means it's an activity done with passion. It's not something that's just done um, one time and neglected. Someone who's constantly bending over the perfect law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer. And the word doer here is in the noun, suggests an identity to, can be translated to a performer. That's what we're now known as, a performer of the word of God. But it starts with this individual who's bending over the word of God, who is studying the word of God, who's immersed in the word of God so that he can become a performer of the word of God. And notice what he says, blessed in his doings. Very similar to what we read in Proverbs 29. Blessed is a man who keeps the law. This individual will be a progressive. He will be one who progresses as a Christian. And if he hears it and he applies it, he will be a blessed man. This is what is instructed to the young evangelist in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, where it says this, practice these things, and it's in the context of the word that he is to teach the word, that he is to know the word. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, saturate yourself with them, so that all may see your progress. As a Christian, your spiritual development and growth is not to be a concealed or hidden thing. It's not to be something that's done in secret. Everyone should be able to see if you're growing as a Christian. Everyone should be able to look at your life and say he is or she is growing and adding the virtues to their life. That they're growing in the knowledge of the word of God. That they're growing to become more like the word of God. It will become very evident to the Christian community whether one is growing or whether one is dying. And everyone will be able to see that. Timothy is encouraged to practice these things. He's encouraged to immerse in these things so that others will see his growth and his development. This is what it means to keep the law of God is to be governed by it, to immerse yourself in it, and allow to be guided by it, and to the desired man and woman that God has for us. Therefore, blessed is a man and woman who does this. He will be in a state of involving, in a state of growing, and there he will be contempt, and there he will be in a state of happiness. One of the most miserable type of Christians in the world are often those who are not growing. They're not developing. They stay in the same hole. They complain about their environment, about their situations, and they have no sense of joy or gladness in their existence as they embark on this Christian journey and Christian walk. And they want others to join them in their melancholy. And all of this is because they have flatlined in their Christian walk. They have flatlined in their Christian journey. They have, are even and eventually that will start going down. They no longer are engaged in the word of God. They're no longer studying the word of God. They're no longer being molded according to his will. 
And so often it is these that cast off the restraints of God's word, his guidance, and they are brought to a ruin and devastation. They had bought into the idea, or they buy into the idea that there is something out there that can bring them happiness because they are no longer um, feel happiness with the scripture. They no longer desire the scripture. And therefore, they're not in the state of blessed as a man who keeps the law. So they want to find happiness in something else. And they can start pursuing that. And they start removing themselves from the Christian community. They start removing themselves from the word of God. And eventually, them seeking happiness as their goal, they would be brought to ruin. If you've been in the church very long, you've seen this time and time again. It usually happens because someone is no longer wrestling with the Word of God. Someone is no longer engaged in the Word of God. Someone is no longer being molded by the Word of God. Unless they want something else, they seek that something else, and they're brought to ruin. But we can listen to the wisdom of this inspired writer, and instead of chasing after happiness and trying to find it, it can be granted and given to us if we keep the law. I want to end on the thoughts of this passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 40, 47, and 52. This is a description of Jesus as a child. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. In verse 47, all were heard of him was amazed at his understanding and his answer, saw the development he had made. And Jesus, verse 52, increased in wisdom and in statues and in favor with God and man. So many of us can be sold the subtle idea that you, we don't need the word of God or that we just have enough of it to just get by. Here is the boy Jesus, God incarnate, saturated himself in the word. Would it be wise for us to follow this example or set our own path? I believe it would be wise for us to follow the example of Jesus in this text, of growing in wisdom, of others seeing our develop in the word of God. But I understand that life can carry us away. We can be distracted by that message that the world constantly bombards us over and over again. This is what you need to be happy. This is what you need to have joy in your life. This is what you need to be content. And we buy that, and then we're satisfied for a week or two, and then we buy the next product, and we keep on going, keep on going, keep on going, until we're far removed from the Word of God. And then we see our position. Like Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, or a devastated position, a ruined position. And we don't know the road of return. But the church is here to help you. If you're here today and you have walked away from the Word of God, if you have failed to study the Word of God in the way that you know you ought to and immerse yourself in the Word of God, being molded by the Word of God, if you bought other messages and you realize now you're enslaved to those other messages and you need freedom, the church can help you. We have a song that has been selected. If you need any assistance, we wish to encourage you to come as we stand and sing the song that has been selected.